Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. Hey guys, so just a quick overview here on Panthera Advisors, as I think it might be of value to you. So Panthera Advisors exist in order to help founders that are in the process of raising capital or get their company acquired. I actually started the company out of incredible frustration because during my entrepreneurial journey, which involved building, financing, scaling, and exiting companies, I could not find a resource that was founder-friendly and I could not get the type of support that I was seeking. So as a result, I made a ton of mistakes along the way. So if you're looking to raise capital, or you are looking to get your company acquired, or just need some sound financial planning, and you're looking to get the best possible outcome in the shortest period of time, feel free to learn more by visiting us at pantheraadvisors.com, or just reach out directly and shoot me a note at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. Alrighty, hello everyone. Welcome to the Deal Maker Show. So today we have a, a founder that very interesting journey. I mean, he's built many, many companies and obviously been involved in the tech space since the very early days. So um, I think we're gonna learn a lot about building, scaling, financing, exiting. So the full cycle. So I guess uh, without further ado, I'd like to welcome our guest, Bill Barhit. Welcome to the show. Hey man, thanks for having me. Pleasure to be here. So originally born in New York City. So how was right. life growing up in the city? Um, you know, I was born in the Bronx and uh, immigrant family from Italy and uh, kind of typical, uh, you know, like middle class uh, family trying to make it out to the suburbs, you know, uh, scale, scale your life. Typ typical New York story from the 50s, 60s, 70s, I suppose. And, um, you know, lived through the whole kind of Bronx is burning tales of the late 70s with the brownouts and watched the transition uh, of New York back to, you know, a really fun kind of vibrant, safe city that it's become over the last 20 years, which is fantastic. Yeah, because I mean, right now there is a great areas, for example, in the Bronx, but, uh, you know, back then, I mean, it was uh, probably not not very safe. So maybe you had to live through that as well. Yeah, it was not safe. And, and, and it was amazing, uh, the transition up and down and I'm really glad to see that uh, the city is is going through a, a multi-decade kind of revitalization, not just Manhattan and the business district, but all parts of the city, uh, Brooklyn, Staten Island, the Bronx. It's, it's, it's really fun to watch. And how do you get into computer science? I, I've been kind of a, a math and, and tech geek my whole life. As a kid, I have a very strong affinity to mathematics. My father encouraged me when I was very, very young. We had a TRS-80 computer. Maybe some of the older folks in your audience know what that is. He taught me basic programming when I was like 11 and 12. It stuck with me. Um, I started teaching myself other programming languages later. Uh, I learned C and then C++. And then I decided uh, I, was, I, I was, I knew I wanted to study science and engineering, but ultimately decided that I had such a strong affinity for computer science that it would be fun for me to use that as a spring, springboard for whatever else I wanted to do. Uh, in life. And um, it served me uh, really well and was definitely the right choice for me. So obviously it took you a couple of rodeos before you landed in tech. I mean, you did NASA, CIA, Goldman Sachs, and then Netscape. So how do you, how do you switch? And end up in Netscape? 
Yeah, so it's it's a good question. I mean, I as a kid, I wanted to be an astronaut, no doubt. And uh, you know, uh, the opportunity to work in research for NASA and contribute to that in some way was just too much to to not, to pass up. And um, I ended up moving to California, and I had never been west of the Mississippi in my life. And I came out here to Silicon Valley, and it was in those days especially. Uh, it was paradise. I just couldn't believe it. And so the idea that I could work for NASA, live out here, go to Stanford, it was just incredible. And, and so, um, I really learned a lot about high performance computing, um, supporting large research projects, uh, what happens in the scientific community. It wasn't necessarily my calling, but it was a lot of fun and I'm, I'm really glad I did it. And I, I remember, um, uh, I was, uh, doing recruiting for NASA at Stanford and, um, I was at a recruiting session uh, with a lot of a lot of companies, and uh, some folks from Goldman Sachs were asking me what I did for NASA, not really knowing if they understood what I was talking about because it was all scientific kind of stuff. And they came back to me sometime later and said, "Hey, we love your background. We think you'd be perfect for this area of financial research." And they started describing to me what they do, and I didn't understand a word they were saying. I said, "I, I have no idea what you're talking about. I'll take it on faith that." that this is relevant, but I don't really get it. So anyway, I, I went out to New York and I, I spent a couple of weeks talking to different people. And I was fascinated by just the sheer intelligence of, of everybody I was meeting and, and how brilliant everyone was. And, um, and the idea of learning the financial markets was really interesting to me. So I ended up taking a job there in, in fixed income and uh, worked in fixed income research for several years and really learned, sat on the trading desk for a couple of years and learned the, the, the business every which way possible. And uh, it was it was quite a journey. Uh, I loved it, and um, really, you know, I, I had this entrepreneurial bug in me, and and really wanted to work in tech, uh, software in particular. And so eventually, uh, and I also wanted to travel internationally. And so when the opportunity came along, and 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 I saw that the internet was going to be the next big thing, or potentially the big thing, uh, I had to I had to be part of it, and that led me inexorably to uh, to Netscape. And so. I really haven't looked back since. I, I've considered myself since the day I left Goldman an entrepreneur at heart, and um, you know that's where my that's where my passions really lie. And how were those early days of the internet? I mean, especially you know at this time you had to experience the the interesting fights between Netscape and Microsoft. Oh my God, it was incredible. So I've seen I've seen it all from an internet perspective, right? I mean, I've helped banks build their first online services. I've helped uh, you know big telecoms like Deutsche Telekom, British Telecom, uh, Telefonica build their first online services ever, um, even with dial-up. Um, and I, I, I remember working with a couple of telecoms in Europe who basically were distributing our Netscape uh, Navigator browser software, and Microsoft was basically offering to pay them money to not distribute Netscape, which is you know highly illegal. And then fighting the wars with them, which we obviously lost, uh, we were vindicated via the courts. But by then, it was too late, right? And and so just just the lessons that you learned about what it can what it can mean in a cutthroat business environment have really stuck with me through the years, and what it means to build a moat around your business so that you can protect, uh, but also add value as you go. And so so those were some pretty incredible incredible lessons. But I, you know, I also ran a very large PL at a very young age. And so, so that was also a big lesson for me and just basically 
kind of diving off the deep end into the water and 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 having to 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 stay afloat, right? Uh, and 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 really, you know, it was basically swim or or die. And uh, you know, we swam and and we made a good run of it. And like I said, everything I I really learned about running a P and L and dealing with competition and closing the deals, uh, working incredible hours and and identifying people with shared passion. I really learned there. Um, so I think between my MBA and in, in entrepreneurship at Netscape and my MBA in capital markets at Goldman Sachs, I got a pretty good on the job uh, set of lessons. So then let's talk about putting those MBAs into practice, into practice, <laughs> okay. all, all of that experience at Netscape, because obviously now you are on the fourth company and, you know, I like to really touch on the last one, you know, and especially of all the world of crypto, which I'm sure that our listeners are really going to enjoy. So I think that, you know, I, I'd like, before we get into that, I'd like to really touch very quickly on the three prior companies. And and rather than going through the entire story, I'd like to really just touch very quickly on them, but most importantly, understand what lesson, what important lesson was there for you on each one of those three companies. So why don't we start with the first one, with, with WebCentric. Obviously, this was the first one right after Netscape. So tell us what was WebCentric and what was your biggest lesson from it? Sure. So this was this was uh, late '90s, kind of dot com boom was raging. AOL had just acquired Netscape, so I was all full of gravitas and 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 ready to go out on my own and change the world. I think I was uh, what 30 years old, and so so I had this this arrogant idea that I was going to start a company and it was going to be a big multi billion dollar company overnight, and you know just 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 really riding the wave of all the craziness going on in the in the dot com boom. So I started this company, and I was really passionate about, um, you know, basically uh, web, anything that any services that would basically enable people to communicate via the web. And so I started this company, WebCentric, which was a very early precursor to today what we call Zoom or WebEx, or uh, at the time we had, um, I don't remember, there was a whole bunch of them, but um, but basically, it was an online meeting service. You could share documents. You could um, do very simple audio conferencing, but fully integrated into the web browser. And, and, and in 1998, this was a big deal. There wasn't a lot of that. And so I made every mistake you could possibly make as an entrepreneur. I, I took on too much work for myself. I did a lot of top uh, bottoms-up hiring. I was hiring individual developers. I was trying to manage marketing and, and, and engineering and, and finance and doing it all myself as opposed to going out and, and finding really seasoned people that I could trust, giving them a bunch of stock and, 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 and making sure that they, I could trust them to help me build this business. And so, so I really learned the hard way that um, you, know, you have to have a core group of people around you quickly that you can trust in order to build a business. And the second lesson, uh, which I really learned over the last few years, is, is that you have to get to um, users and customers as quickly as possible. The product doesn't have to be perfect, but the product has to exist and it has to meet some needs from someone, even if it's a gaming product like at Scenari, right? We learned right away that even if we didn't have the best games, if we had games that were engaging, but were unique because, for example, we ran this prize-based gaming service, which was very early in the mobile phone business, nobody else had it. And people who were really interested in prize-based gamings they would say, hey, you guys don't have the best games, but we love this prize catalog. It's super fun. And so we would get a lot of repeat users making, spending a lot of money on our gaming service. And so this whole idea of establishing product market fit 
very, very early and not trying to over-engineer a product so that you can get in the hands of customers very quickly is something that has really stuck with me over the years. Too many entrepreneurs are too focused on building this end-all, be-all product before they've released anything, and it's too late by the time they do. And, and so you have to get a product in the hands of your customers, business or consumer, as quickly as possible. Get the feedback, see what you've done right, see what you've done wrong, start to iterate. Then you're in business. And so that idea of product market fit has really stuck with me uh, over the over the last uh, you know 15 years. And so so we've you know now with with my last company Boom and with Abra, I'm very heavily focused on constant iteration and constantly getting a product in in a consumer's hands and 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 getting even feedback before we launch a product uh, from from real customers. So the next company, so obviously uh, <clears throat> Scenari, sorry, was the next company, but but WebCentric was acquired by SAP. So uh, so yeah. not bad for being the first business, you know, first uh, first good outcome. So Scenari was the next one. So what what did you learn? What was the lesson learned for, with Scenari? And then what, what were you guys doing at Scenari? Well, you know, we, we had a really good run at the beginning. This was before iPhone and Android, right? So this was basically people using feature phones like the flip phones we had in the U.S. or the candy bar phones in, in, in Europe. And, and um, we made games for those phones, and we were pretty successful at it. As soon as the iPhone came along, that business really went away because all of the usage went to smartphones. And so we didn't make the transition quickly enough to the smartphone environment. Uh, there was no app store in the early days of the iPhone, and that also hurt us because um, Apple really controlled the ecosystem. And so what we really should have done was gone in very, very deep on smartphones as quickly as we could. And because we didn't make that transition, we ended up um, selling the business, I think, at a, at a much lower valuation than we probably would have um, eventually. But um, the good news is, is that I think the acquirer was able to you know, take advantage of the technology and integrate it into the smartphone world. But that was a big lesson for me because as a technologist, I knew the trend, right? It was very obvious that the desktop was going to move to the phone, to me at least. But we didn't make the transition as a company, um, and that really hurt us. And I think that even though we had a great product, we had lots of users, um, we didn't look far enough ahead to see what was coming. And that was a huge lesson for us. But like I said, uh, it was still a successful outcome, um, but I wish we had uh, seen the trend sooner. Got it. Obviously, sold to emotive. So second yep. business, second exit. So good stuff. And then the third one, Boom Financial. So what were you guys doing at Boom Financial and what sure. was the lesson there? So Boom Financial basically had two different components to it. We had we had a nonprofit business, uh, which did a lot of work in uh, places like Haiti uh, and rural Mexico and, and you know rural parts of Central America, helping people uh, basically open bank accounts via their, their feature phone or now smartphone. And we had another business which interacted with the nonprofit, which was money transfer uh, via the U.S. So you could do use your phone uh, for uh, doing very simple, quick uh, cross-border uh, money transfer services directly from from your from your from your phone. And you could get a debit card, and basically that would turn into a very simple bank account, and you could send money from your phone, um, and the recipient would then get a bank account in, in for example, in Haiti on their phone. And they could easily withdraw the money at lots of locations that we would set up throughout the country. And the idea would be that by lowering the cost of money transfer, 
uh, we could basically integrate people into this uh, new type of banking system that was geared towards migrant workers. And we were pretty successful at it. And that caught the attention of Digicel, which is the largest wireless carrier in the region. Uh, and they made a major investment in the company, uh, which um, has really led them to more or less run the business now. And they run the business as their mobile money arm, which is uh, also you know, uh, a big win. The company's still operating, and uh, I don't, I, I'm a little out of touch. I know they're getting some success in, in their, they're operating in like 30 countries. Uh, and I know that it operates as their mobile money business in those countries. Uh, which is fantastic. And so it's a very strong kind of mission-driven company, a lot of the same employees from the early days uh, running the business. And so, you know, I'm really excited to see where Digicel takes that over the next few years. And obviously, this was the segue into crypto and Absolutely. to Abra. So, so, so tell us about this. So basically, this whole crypto story is really interesting, right? I mean, this is something that I've been looking at for almost a couple of decades since my kind of cypherpunk days in the very early days of the internet where we really wanted this idea of money for the internet. But you know, traditionally, you have to trust someone to create money, right? In the US, we trust the Treasury and the, and the Federal Reserve. Ironically, we trust them to responsibly, I'm using air quotes, to, to, to manage our money supply. And if we, if we watch what they've been doing for the last kind of 15 years, they've effectively been printing money without end, uh, which is not responsible if you, know, if you actually care about the value of your money. And they don't. Their, their writ is to manage an economy and focus on employment, not to manage the value of your money. They have no interest in the value of your money. So, so if you focus on the value of money, it, it's really interesting, right? And so um, along comes this kind of anonymous guy who figured out how to create, um, create money for the internet with no central trusted party, uh, which even the idea of that seemed impossible. And it was a huge breakthrough. And not only that, it solved on paper a lot of the problems and challenges that you face in building a banking service, especially cross-border, right? Where the regulatory um, oversight and the licensing and the AML rules, they're just incredible. And so the idea that you could do peer-to-peer -peer kind of money transfer and peer-to-peer -peer banking transactions with no financial intermediary. Wow. I mean, that is just a, a crazy idea. And it turns out that it worked. And this, of course, is what we know as Bitcoin today. And uh, its underlying blockchain technology that enables these trustless transactions has really been a huge breakthrough. So, so that led me to this idea that, well, maybe we could build a new type of bank that took advantage of this cryptocurrency technology in a way where we could finally build one single global banking application that worked everywhere for the first time, right? That didn't really exist before. And, and so that really was the idea behind Abra. Can, can we have one app that anybody in the world can download that becomes effectively their bank account? They can hold dollars, they can hold Bitcoin, they can hold euros. And they can exchange between them. They can send money to each other. Eventually, they can pay for stuff locally. But it doesn't matter whether you're a, a poor farmer in rural Philippines or a rich banker in New York or London. It's the same app. And that, that's the vision that we've realized with Abra. We have users in 100 countries. We have hundreds of thousands of wallets running uh, today in, in, in all of these countries. We have people with you know, $5 balances, and we have people with hundreds of thousands of dollars of balances. So 
So it's it's a it's really is that that first kind of global banking app. Um, we haven't completely eliminated all of those kind of uh, compliance issues. We 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 run a very tight compliance ship, but the cryptocurrency technology enables us to service a global client base that we simply couldn't do, um, you know, before. And that's just just a huge win. And um, and it can also be a profitable business, which is fantastic. And so, you know, we're not profitable yet, but we're we're well on our way. And I think uh, in the next several months, we'll we'll actually achieve profitability. And how much capital have you guys raised? Uh, we've announced about thirty-five million in venture funding to date. Um, we've got some corporate uh, venture backing as well, including American Express, uh, Foxconn, the company that makes the iPhone, um, Arbor, uh, which is a Fidelity-backed uh, venture fund out of Asia, uh, is a major backer. RRE Ventures out of New York, uh, Lair Hippo, First Round Capital was our seed funding. Uh, they're very well known. You probably know them from Twitter and Square and and Uber and other very successful uh, Silicon Valley uh, angel capital investments. So we've been very fortunate to build a, a fantastic um, investment uh, group around us that's been adding a lot of value as we go. So obviously, the um, you know it's incredible the run of crypto. I mean, from zero to hundreds of billions of dollars and. And, you know, something really interesting was, uh, you know, also, I mean, now that we're coming out of of this craziness that has happened with the uncertainty with COVID and how the markets have reacted, how have you seen the behavior of the markets around crypto as well in parallel to that? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, there's a lot of confusion right now. You know, we've been in this kind of holding pattern uh, from a capital markets perspective for several months now where it's just been sideways and people are just really curious. However, you know, the promise of Bitcoin was, was that it was an, uh, what we would call an uncorrelated asset, meaning that it wouldn't move in lockstep with stocks. And for the most part, it hasn't with one exception. And that's when, uh, when the markets, capital markets like equities tanked in March, uh, Bitcoin tanked almost in like completely in lockstep. And that had never happened before. And so what we've discovered is, is because it's still very early and nascent and still getting a lot of the discretionary investment dollars that consumers have, if consumers feel they don't have those discretionary dollars, then they don't invest. And so in that regard, um, Bitcoin and crypto are still somewhat subject to the extreme movements in the markets. I would say the day-to-day -day movements, not as much, but when you see extreme movements up or down, it does affect what's happening in the crypto markets. Now, I suspect that that um, correlation will get more and more diminished over time, uh, but it's an interesting phenomenon. Now, what's also interesting is, is the idea of institutional money coming into crypto was a crazy idea five years ago. Like people just looked at this and said, capital markets can't even touch this. Between the regulatory issues, the lack of understanding, com complex technology, security issues. They're just not going to touch it. Well, that turned out to be completely untrue. The amount of institutional interest and focus in crypto from hedge funds, I speak to hedge funds all the time about Bitcoin, to uh, other kind of even mutual funds are trying to figure out if they should be offering cryptocurrencies to US-based um, 401k and IRA retirement plans, looking at cryptocurrencies now. It's, it's really changed the landscape. And, and I think it's becoming... Um, not quite yet, but will become a, a core staple of a rounded investment portfolio in the coming decade. 
Yeah, because I mean, it's interesting how Bitcoin is treated more as a, as an investment rather than as a way to to transact and and purchase uh, things between individuals. So, do you that think will, that would change? That will change. I think that I, I think of it as a banking stack, right? So, so in in the traditional banking and payments world, we have the Federal Reserve, we have we have the banks, uh, we have the payment processors, we have the merchants. And so we need an analogous stack to evolve in the cryptocurrency world. And, and so right now, its, it's, it's best application is clearly store of value. It's actually been very stable over the last year. I mean, it's, it has some intraday volatility, but the price has been relatively stable. But um, we see some kind of second layer technologies evolving that will allow very efficient, very rapid, very low cost microtransactions using Bitcoin. Um, that can scale to visa-like numbers over time. As that second and third layer of services takes hold, I think you're going to see a parallel stack to the traditional banking stack evolve in Bitcoin that's going to breathe even new life into it from a payments perspective, not just a, an e-gold perspective. So let's say, let's say here, Bill, that you go to sleep tonight and you wake up in five years from now and you, wor- you wake up in a world where the vision of Abra is fully realized. What does that look like? Oh, that's a great question. So in five years, um, uh, great question. So I think that Abra has become a very important company in the glo- the growing global banking community, right? Consumers in any country can download Abra onto a smartphone, open up effectively a quote-unquote crypto bank account, so if I'm in Argentina or Brazil or Zimbabwe or the UK or Germany, doesn't matter. I can store my dollars, my euros, my Bitcoin, my, my Ripple, my Ether. I can probably make uh, even eventually stock investments all from one app and actually move between those investments. I can send money to my family members, to the person sitting next to me. I can pay my bar bill, my restaurant bill. I can pay my my electricity bill. I can probably get a loan. I can probably borrow against my assets. Or if I've established credit, I can get a small dollar loan instantly by pushing a button in the app. And I probably have a credit score uh, attached to that. And so it really looks like a traditional banking system, but all based upon cryptocurrency rails available globally. And do you think that maybe in the future there's going to be a point where we're not like pulling out a wallet and taking a piece of paper out of it? Oh, absolutely. That has to go away. There's there's a couple of issues with that, right? The first is, first of all, money is disgusting. Let's let's just point that out, right? Now, if you're in the middle of a pandemic, it's particularly easy to point out. I also spent a lot of time in Haiti after the earthquake, and if you remember, they had a it was like a double whammy we say in English because they also had the cholera outbreak. If you remember, right after the earthquake. Uh, which ironically came from a lot of the UN workers, I believe. So you basically have this scenario where, you know, not only is 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 the money disgusting, and and you have to deal with that, but at the same time, um, you know, the, the money itself is an untraceable bearer instrument in theory, right? And so you don't necessarily want to have to trust banks for everything, but we don't have a suitable replacement for the idea of a paper-based bearer instrument. Well, that, that's where Bitcoin becomes very interesting, or cryptocurrencies in general become very interesting, because you can store your Bitcoin online in a banking service like Abra, and 
you can also store a small amount of it in a wallet that you carry with you that's not online, meaning that nobody else has access to that Bitcoin and it's completely private. The key is private. And so that's a big breakthrough. And that actually replaces traditional money from a paper perspective with something that's purely digital. Okay. And, and we've never had that before. And so that's a, that's the other breakthrough that I think is, is in part about digital money, right? It replaces all of the kind of, you know, germs and everything that you don't want on paper, but it also deals with the benefits of having a bearer instrument that you can carry around with you. Of course. So obviously now a bill, I mean, remarkable, the, the journey as an entrepreneur that you've had, uh, you know, I mean, this is now the fourth company. So obviously there's been, you know, incredible learnings. Uh, so I guess now that, that let's say if, if you, if, if I was to ask you the question that I asked to typically the, the guests that come on the show, which is, you know, if you had the chance to have a chat, a chat with your younger self uh, and give yourself one piece of advice before launching a business, what would that be and why knowing what you know? Well, I think that you need to be, first of all, it's really hard, okay? And, and you need to be really passionate about the problem you're trying to solve because you're going to have so many uh, you know, bullets flying at you that you need to dodge to just stay alive as an entrepreneur that if you're not passionate about the problem you're trying to solve and can't see yourself focused on that problem for many, many years, uh, you're going to be... Uh, disappointed because you know when the when it gets really hard, your motivation for sticking it out and dealing with those problems is not going to be there. And that's why I tell people, make sure you're doing this for the right reasons, because those reasons are going to dictate what you do when it gets tough. And if you think it's not going to get tough, you're delusional. Every entrepreneur faces hard times. Even Google, right? People see Google as this powerhouse today. Google was almost shut down by its investors several times, but they were really passionate about what they were doing and they stuck it out and eventually they figured out a way to make money. And, and, you know, but if you don't have that tenacity driven by the passion for what you're doing, it's not going to work. Understood. And that's very, very profound, Bill. So for the folks that are listening, what is the best way for them to reach out and say hi? Sure. A couple of ways. Um, so I'm on Twitter. Uh, Bill Barheights uh, is the easiest way. Uh, you can also um, uh, Bill, B-A-R-H-Y-D-T, and then Abra Global is also on Twitter. Uh, and I'm pretty active um, on those uh, online uh, forums. That's probably the best way. Uh, we also do uh, a weekly YouTube show called um, uh, Money Talks on the Abra channel. So just search for the Abra channel on YouTube. And we do an AMA every week where we answer questions about banking, crypto, how to use the app, what's happening in the world, basically anything that people want to talk about. Amazing. Well, Bill, thank you so much for being on the DealMaker Show today. Thank you so much for having me. This was a lot of fun. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode. <laughs>